Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart. And I'm Nick Gosling. And today we are joined by Dr. Art Cardin, an associate professor of economics at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and a senior research fellow with the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, a research fellow with the Independent Institute, and a senior fellow with the Beacon Center of Tennessee. Today, Art is here to talk with us about an important issue, immigration. Art, I think if I were to pick a single issue, if I were a single issue voter, this is probably one of them. And for me, it seems like this is probably the biggest single ticket for rapid and widespread human flourishing. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. Um, A lot of people have said that if you're not for at least some type of reduction in restrictions on immigration, you're probably not really that serious about reducing global poverty. You can increase earnings for a lot of people in the world by a factor of five just by having them cross a border. And furthermore, you could massively increase the liberty of people in the world by having them cross from uh, unfree jurisdictions into free jurisdictions. I've been convinced by that argument. I think one of the things that we probably need to talk about here is there's probably a lot of our listeners who have these sort of fears and concerns about what happens if you let too many people in at once or what happens if we just, you know, do, do we just sounds like lawlessness is this whole idea. You know, when you use the word open borders, you didn't use that word, but if someone uses the word open borders and I will honestly admit to people I'm for, I use the word relatively open borders. And when I explain it, I sort of explain it the same way that Pennsylvania and Maryland have open borders with each other. And that's kind of the way I see a broader national border relationship working. When you think about immigration and, and the increase in the amount of it, where, where do you land? I definitely advocate open borders. I think anybody who wants to move anywhere should be allowed. If you can find someone who wants to sell you a house or give you a job, then I don't see how or why I would have any reason or any right to stop you, to stop your prospective employer, to stop, stop your prospective landlord, stop the prospective person who's going to sell you a house. Um, There's really no good reason that I can see to restrict immigration from one place into another. Now, there's a possible concern, which is that if you do push the button and get rid of the border, that maybe you get some type of social chaos for a very short period of time. And while it's true that there will be probably a big sudden influx, that's something I think the United States is pretty well equipped to handle. We have very robust institutions of civil society. These are the kinds of things that we've dealt with before. And uh, furthermore, as as Brian Kaplan has pointed out in a couple of different places, it's not really clear that the the immigration flows will be that large. Well, they'll probably be pretty big, but people generally don't like to leave home. You know, I live in Alabama because it's home. I live in Alabama because my family's here. Um, my guess is that there are a lot of people who you know would stay in Mexico because that's home, because that's where their family is. They'd stay in Honduras because that's home. That's where their family is. What's important, I think, for how we understand institutions, human flourishing, and economic development is giving some of the poorest and least free people in the world an exit option. 
which then provides a lot of pressure on their home country governments to get their policy house in order. What would you say, because this is, this is an argument that, that comes up a lot in our circles, and as you know, even amongst libertarians, there's some division on this subject. So right. what would you say to those who would, who would argue that this is not an America first type policy? Or to those who would say um, that foreign governments, because they they are not playing by the same rules and they're manipulating the system to depress uh, wages artificially, how can America compete on that if there's just completely free immigration? How would you answer those critics? So I'm really not sure what the argument is there. How could we compete if we had relatively open immigration? Well, first, a lot of a lot of wages that are being earned by people who would who would face lower wages from from competition from immigrants um, are, uh, to be quite honest, are their economic rents, their their earnings that are above and beyond what the labor would earn in a a purely competitive market. Now, what what we're going to get, what we're ultimately going to get, I think, and the the empirical literature bears this out with relatively large-scale immigration would be specialization of non-English speakers in fields and lines of work that are not that are not forward-facing and specialization of native English speakers in fields and areas that are forward-facing. And indeed we see this in we see this in, in uh, uh, industries that are immigrant heavy already. Play um, the kinds of Jobs for which you don't need strong English skills, those can be filled by immigrants. The kinds of jobs for which you do need strong English skills can be filled by by natives. And actually, both for you know for both groups, their incomes go up. I think that's one of the major misunderstandings is that the effect on wages of born citizens or already citizens of the United States mm-hmm. aren't, aren't affected as much as, or they're actually positively affected uh, by and large by more immigration. Right. Yeah. That's a story that I think a lot of people, a lot of people just don't sort of get. It's plausible and it's sort of emotionally intuitive at least to think that, well, if we just open up, if we open up immigration, that's going to depress wages automatically. That's going to push American workers out of jobs. It's going to, uh, you know, the world's going to be like the South Park episode that, that you've probably seen where the, the immigrants from the future come and take everybody's jobs. That's an example of what economists call the lump of labor fallacy, which is this idea that there's a, there's a, a fixed amount of work to be done and that it's a zero-sum game, ultimately. So if I'm doing a job, if I'm doing work, this prevents someone else from being able to do work. And if someone else comes in and takes a job or gets a job, then this pushes me out. And that's absolutely not the way that market economies work. In fact, the employment opportunities are created by the opportunities to exchange. So you can get a job because you can trade with people. You can, or other people can get a job because they can trade with you. Yeah, I, I think this is really a, a good example of broken window fallacy and the whole idea of what is seen and not seen. I mean, I've yeah. gone around on this issue with uh, some some friends of mine who uh, are, are otherwise relatively libertarian. You know, they mm-hmm. supported Ron Paul and everything, but but they've kind of become economic nationalists in the last few years and uh, and really espouse kind of that Trump philosophy of economics and. So it, one of one of those claims that kind of gets made when you really distill down the argument is, well, this philosophy is it, it's helping consumers maybe, uh, but it's not helping employers or, or or excuse me employees. 
And I think that's an artificial distinction, right? Because if, if you're a person and you're participating in the economy in any way, uh, you, you, you are a consumer. And in, in many cases, you're also a producer. So I, I think that's kind of a, a false dichotomy. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. Um, separating producers from consumers can be analytically convenient. But if we're going to look at the, the overall effect on an individual, we have to count um, effect on nominal wages. We have to count uh, effect on employment opportunities. Again, we also have to count effects on prices, effects on uh, consumption opportunities and things like that. And again, the literature, I think, suggests that the net economic effect of immigrants – is pretty high and pretty well, pretty evenly distributed across the spectrum. And again, this is one, one of the major reasons for this comes from differences in the skill distribution. So the kinds of people who immigrate to the United States tend to be either very highly skilled or very low skilled. And a lot of Americans obviously are somewhere in the middle. So this provides, uh, this provides a lot more opportunities for complementary skills to come together. What about the effects on the infrastructure? Because that's another argument that I, I often hear brought up is that, you know, these immigrants come here and they're not paying the same taxes as Americans, but they're taking money out of the welfare system and they're wearing down the roads and all these sorts of things. And so in that respect, it's a, it's a net negative on these sort of collectivized resources we have, like like roads and infrastructure. What would you say to that argument? Yeah, well, a lot of these things are are in a sense non-rivalrous. So, um, so you can't really exclude people from consuming them, or it's very very difficult to exclude people from consuming them. But then everybody is going to be able to pay. Everybody's going to be paying. So when we're talking about something like the highway system, when we're talking about something like like the welfare state or what have you, in a lot of cases, we're actually able to spread those costs out over much larger populations, over much larger groups of workers. And if the argument is they're going to come here for welfare, that's an argument against the welfare state. That's not an argument against immigration. And moreover, if we want to think about, if you want to think about net effects on our standards of living, then we have to balance the additional taxes we would have to pay to fund the welfare state against the uh, benefits we would get in the form of greater culinary diversity, um, more abundant goods and services, cheaper goods and services, more opportunities again to flourish. And when people when people talk about liberty as a possible thing or as a, as a possible victim of an of a more open immigration system, the liberty to buy and sell, the liberty to cooperate with people that you want to cooperate, is itself an important liberty. And infringing on that is by itself an infringement on uh, what I think is a basic liberty. Another question that we then have to ask if we're thinking about the sort of the veracity of the political institutions or the veracity of American liberty is how much how much are we willing to give up in order to provide the state with the discretion, the authority, the resources it needs to crack down on immigration. And it's not at all clear to me that we are freer, or we would be freer, even if a lot of the immigrants who came in would vote for more progressive, more redistributive policies. I'd much rather pay you know, slightly higher taxes 
for, I don't know, schools or healthcare or food stamps than pay higher taxes for, um, I don't know, customs agents and immigration enforcement officials to have like guns and things like that that they can then use to you know, conduct these various raids. I'd much rather pay slightly higher taxes to pay for, uh, again, you know, to pay for a little bit of additional welfare state than be subject to the prying eyes of regulators who want to make sure that I'm not hiring any illegal immigrants. Well, it seems like that comparison, and I kind of like that because that comparison says, well, you know, I know libertarians argue over whether or not, liber- well, everybody argues over whether or not certain taxes are have a net benefit yeah. on people who are poor, but it's demonstrably true that preventing somebody who's poor from coming to the U.S. will harm them in a yeah. in, not in a direct way, but in a you can't come here, sorry, you can't make your life better, even though you want to and are capable of doing so. So yeah. I think that's probably a safe trade-off. It it the attitude, you know, we think this whole conversation has already gone into well. This is one reason why people don't want more immigrants. This is another reason why people don't want yeah. more immigrants. And I recently read the book The Righteous Mind by Jonathan mm-hmm. Haidt, and he made the case that, and a very good case, that people kind of have these rationalities, these biases towards something, and they yeah. just kind of seek it out whenever something confirms whatever they already are predisposed to to believe. And I think it's kind of a cultural thing for us to be anti-immigrant, even at the height of the, you know, 100 years ago when there was a lot more immigration, people were against you know, Irish people coming over and, and Chinese people coming over. Yep. And and so it's almost like this this aspect of, well, we want freedom over here on this side of the border, but right. we're not going to let you feel free to to cross over and do it. And one, one thing that I think people are a little fearful of, and it has to do with things like, you know, since 9-11 especially, terrorism, what if we let the wrong people in? And right. so there's <laughs> my counter to that, and I'll let you kind of speak to the the sure. broader questions I'm asking here is, well, we could absolutely let the right people in. We could let more right people in because we let more people in mm-hmm. that might solve mm-hmm. our terrorism problems forever. So, you know, there's someone stuck on the other side of the border who might actually have this really amazing solution that we won't ever get to hear because we've been restricting them. That's kind of a facetious way of putting it. But uh, what are your thoughts on why people just it's really hard for them to convert over to this aspect or it just takes a long time and what about this question of like letting the wrong people in? Yeah, so there's a lot that can be said about that. There, there's actually a really funny article from The Onion. That's probably four or five years old now. But uh, it actually gets at kind of exactly the point you just made about letting the wrong people in. And then all of a sudden they stop being the wrong people. It's about this you know, – the, the article is about this terrorist cell in Los Angeles that just kind of gets lazy where they say, you know, yeah, look, we want to destroy America and everything. But, you know, we want to make sure we get through the next season of House of Cards or something like that. And, you know, Ahmed just, uh, you know, is, is doing really, really well at his job and is up for a promotion. Um, it's it's sort of like, sort of like a, a very, very nice – uh, probably, I don't know. I don't know if it's even intentional on the part of the Onion, but a discussion of kind of how bourgeois virtue can trump some of the darker angels of angels of our nature. With respect to terrorism, the 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 likelihood that you're going to die in a terrorist attack, or that anyone is going to die in a terrorist attack, is effectively zero. Um, it is so unlikely that a person will die in a terrorist attack that again, it's basically not not really worth worrying about. I mean, it sounds awful to say that. But if we're really interested in addressing 
threats to our mortality, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of things that are far more dangerous, far more imminent threats to us than than terrorism. Um, a good rule of thumb is to ask, is this riskier than driving? And driving, driving is one of the riskiest things that people do. If you fear dying in a terrorist attack, then you should never get in a car again. Because again, driving is incredibly dangerous. Terrorism, on the other hand, is extremely, extremely, extremely rare. And then I, I think a, a, a really important point that, that needs to be made and that you know, that I would stress, because again, a, perhaps a plausible argument against more immigration is that we need to protect the institutions of a, of a liberal society. And I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. But it's not clear to me that we're freer in a really meaningful sense if the cost of getting rid of all of the immigrants is all sorts of incursions on our liberty. Like, you know, once again, things like having to participate in E-Verify or um, you know, having to worry that you know, your company's going to going to get hit with a new regulation or having to, having to worry about whether the people you're hiring have green cards or things like that. Um, <clears throat> again, people... People don't think that these are that these are a big deal, but that's a big regulatory burden on business. It's a big regulatory burden on business to require them to track immigration status and things of that nature. You know, I think fundamentally this comes down to a, a philosophical and ethical kind of argument at the end of the day. Because when we look at the economics and, and the, the data that you're citing, I mean, the economics seem pretty clear that immigration oh, yeah. is, is a net benefit. Right to yeah. to us all. Yeah, so, the economics are a slam dunk. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, and I, I think many of our listeners would as well. So, really, what what we're talking about is our ethical, philosophical issues. Yeah, you know, like I had mentioned with my friends earlier, uh, as I go around in circles with them, eventually it comes down to, well, this isn't putting Americans first, or this is putting you know people from China or Mexico ahead of Americans. And so then what we're really dealing with is, is a philosophical question yeah. about where do our loyalties lie and how do we relate to other human beings? And, and on what grounds does the state impose a border and say, this is ours, you may not cross? What are your thoughts on that? Well, and I want to add to that question a little bit. Some of the statistics that you know you talk about with you know the risk of driving versus the likelihood of being killed in a terrorist attack or being harmed in a an act of violence on that kind of scale, I think there's a difference in most people's minds. They're in control of the wheel, and so yeah. they're and they're in control of a lot of things. And so the fact that it's within their sphere of control makes it a little yeah. less problematic, whereas it could be a random act of crime. And I don't think most people are worried about terrorism per se, but about actual crime. And again, I know the statistics show that high immigrant areas are lower in crime. So, I mean, th again, that th the statistics on that are slam dunk as well. You know, and the other thing that I've I hear from people who are concerned is they're concerned for not their neighbor across the border, but their literal neighbors around them saying, well, well if I'm for immigration, which they weren't, they're kind of making this argument. If I'm for immigration, what does that do to my neighbor who may not be? What sort of expectations or duties does it imply that I re require my neighbor to have? My neighbor now has to deal with something that I'm okay with. That is, I'm hiring, say, a person from Mexico to do work, and that may put burden on my my fellow citizens. So it's this 
dilemma I think that some people may have, and they would say their first duty is to their countrymen. And, you know, there's not something entirely wrong with that. But at the same time, it's it's still that emotional aspect before the rational aspect. So I don't know if you can speak to that as well. Well, people are incredibly tribal, as we've as we pointed out, for a lot of different reasons. And the... I, I don't buy the argument that it it doesn't put Americans first. I mean, it puts it privileges some Americans over other Americans. It privileges those Americans who don't want to compete with immigrants um, against those who either don't mind it or those who wish to cooperate with immigrants. And it uses the violent, heavy hand of the state in order to make sure that, that happens. Moreover, as a purely ethical matter, as a purely ethical matter, um, something that I again I think this is an uncomfortable thing to say and an uncomfortable thing to realize is that if you were born in the United States, no matter what, you have won the historical and geographic lottery. You're one of the richest people that the world has ever seen. And so if we talk about something like you know, something like poverty, by restricting immigration, we are privileging relatively wealthy Americans by global standards, by historical standards, against absolutely poor people by historical standards, by global standards. And I'm not I'm not really sure what the what the burden is that my neighbor has to bear if I choose to hire someone uh, if I choose to hire someone from Mexico to cut my grass or, or something to that effect. You know, if if it's merely an aesthetic thing then I think that's that's grotesque and immoral. Like if you don't like the fact that if 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 it if it offends your aesthetic sensibility that uh, I'm doing business with people who don't look like me and and don't talk like me and um Maybe don't pray like me. Then, then that, that's that's vicious on your part. Like that, that's not a. Uh, I, I don't think that's that imposes any obligation on me. And with respect, to, with respect to who else we could hire, um, I mean, you can. My gosh, like that's a. You know, there's there's no bottom to that rabbit hole. You can say I mean, you can say well, okay, um, why why hi, ultimately in the limit? Why hire outside your own household? You know, okay, so I hired. Uh, so I hired someone from Mexico to cut my grass. So well, I could have hired I could have hired an American. Okay, well I, hi- I could hire someone from Alabama. Oh, I could hire someone from Birmingham. I could hire someone from my ne- from in my neighborhood in Birmingham. I could hire someone from my street. I could hire someone from my household. It's almost absurd, I think, to make a claim like that when um, I, I really doubt that anybody would would say that one of my kids has a legitimate claim against me. They said, you know, Dad, you, you hired someone else to fix your lunch today. You know, you went to McDonald's or you went to the cafeteria at Sanford or something like that. You you have you have sinned. Like you have you have done us wrong because you very easily could have paid us to do it for you. I'm not sure where we draw that line. That's a really fantastic point. You know, actually as you were speaking, one of the things that, that kind of came to my mind as a historical reference is, you know, back in the 17th, 18th centuries, Americans typically identified more with their state or their township mm-hmm. than they did with the country. Yeah. And so today, I mean, we think of, yeah, this isn't helpful for Americans, but if you mm-hmm. had gone back to, say, 1840, people might be thinking more along the lines of, this isn't helpful to Virginians or this isn't helpful to New Yorkers. Uh, well, so I mean, a couple of... <laughs> Couple decades after that, you know, I think they fought a they fought a big war, kind of in in you know in part with that in mind. So, yeah, uh, I think that that's an important point. Absolutely, and you know one of the other things that to, to kind of switch gears a little bit towards since we're on the we're on the philosophical ethical questions towards 
what the Bible itself has to say along these lines. As, as you know, and as our listeners know, people can use the Bible, misquote the Bible for practically anything. I mean, proof te- right. texting is ubiquitous. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. We, we, see, we see the right do it with using the Old Testament to say, uh, oh, oh, look, uh, America is God's chosen nation and we must wage holy war. Uh, but we also mm-hmm. see the, the, the left do it by using Old Testament uh, verses that, that pertain to Israel and the Old Covenant yeah. and applying those to contemporary, uh, contemporary America. Yeah. So along those lines, uh, I, I guess another question we have to consider is like, who is, who is our neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I mean, for a Christian, uh, yeah. our, our, our primary loyalty is to the church, and right. to other believers, mm-hmm. and some of those believers might be in Mexico, or they might yeah. be in China, or they might be in Brazil, or or Guatemala. Right. So, do you think that the the economic this economic nationalism that puts mm-hmm. our focus on our our literal neighbor, the guy yeah. down the street, who's mm-hmm. maybe you know maybe hates Christians, uh, and and we're and we're putting uh, that ahead of believers from other countries who we should have a higher loyalty to. It, it, do you have any comments on uh, what what should the church think of this as we're as we're considering where our loyalties and our economic loyalties should lie? Well, I'm obvi- I'm obviously very concerned. Well, okay, I'm I am uncomfortable with. You know, the idea that there should be like a religion test or something like that for you know for loyalty when it comes to you know how we draw borders or something to that effect. But you do raise what I think is what I think is a really important point, and that is you know our citizenship is in the heavenlies. So if we want to talk about our countrymen, yeah, but, you know, we're we're talking about believers the world over. And you know it occurs to me as as a as a homeschooling father of three that I think an area in which the church has kind of dropped the ball is in not teaching church history, you know, really indulging political history without, um, and kind of letting church history be sort of a sidelight. My goal, I hope, and I don't know, I don't know a whole lot about church history. That's my, that's kind of my failing, but given our citizenship, given our obligation, my hope is that we will, uh, you know, that, that with our kids, we'll be able to learn a lot more about church history. I think that where, where things get really interesting with respect to immigration, um, I, I don't, I don't think we can can speak that much about very specific duties or very specific loyalties to abstract strangers. Uh, there, I think there, I think principles are uh, where things where things get really really important. It's not really clear, uh, I think, why why I should prefer one stranger over another. And if anything, the so to the extent that we're going to have any kind of preference, it should presumably be for the one who is in the direst straits. And that's almost always going to be the person who's trying to, who's trying to immigrate. For you personally, how much Mm -hmm. of your belief about this topic is informed by your Christian faith versus your economic background and maybe even research? When I first read Lant Pritchett's book, uh, Let My People Come, I think it's called, it's a it's a book about kind of what would happen if if we had much more much more liberal immigration rules. I became convinced that it's not just it's not just good economics. It's also I think morally important. And when you think about when you think about the kinds of things that are important to Christians, um, first sort of the direct care 
for the poor and the oppressed. Well, you know, that's what that's those are a lot of the people who are trying to get here and they're not coming. They're not coming for welfare. They're coming for, you know, they're coming for opportunities to work. They're coming for opportunities to make their lives better. They're coming in a lot of cases to escape tyrannies of different kinds. So what we're doing is we're actively oppressing people by preventing them at gunpoint from making trades with people who wish to trade with them. And when we think about, when we think too about sort of the mission emphasis of the church or, or our duty to spread the gospel. I'm saddened when I think about, you know, so, you know, so many evangelical mega churches in the United States that spend an enormous amount of money sending out missionaries. And that's great. And that's wonderful and everything like that. And say, you know, they're sending people to the nations. Yeah. You know, well, the nations are clamoring to get here. The nations are clamoring to get here. The mission field wants to come to us. And it seems if, if anyone for, humanitarian reasons, for reasons of, of uh, promulgating the gospel, if anyone should want their, should want much more immigration, it should be Christians. Let me push back a little bit on that, because sure. I have a... I, I agree with you. On the At the same time, I am also... There's this little tinge in me, because I've rejected this myth of a Christian nation, and so I wonder how much of that kind of argument, which I've made and I still advocate for, that we should be very much in favor of helping the poor in any way we can, is is that sort of argument, though, kind of hearkening back to in, in a very different way, because we more align with the left on this issue, if you think, you know, theologically, oh, yeah. because they're far more open to, you know, welcome, welcome the stranger. Is, mm-hmm. Are we asking America to be a Christian nation in that regard? I don't mean all, you know, the whole country and all right, of its yeah, policies, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but are we, are we asking America and all the people all of our fellow citizens who aren't Christians to accept that, well, this is a Christian moral value. Well, are we asking it to be a Christian nation in this issue? I don't know that we are. I don't know that we are. And, or I I don't think we would be asking people to be a, we'd we'd be asking America to be a Christian nation in the way that, uh, that people generally think when they say, you know, America is a Christian nation or, or what have you. Um, I think we are, we're we're appealing we're appealing to what I think is a broad social moral consensus that you know here's a set of principles by which we live, and one of the implications of those principles I think would be, you know, welcoming people who want to yeah you know, who want to come here. The second thing would be the fact that so many Americans are self-identified are self-identifying Christians, so as a as a as members of the polity. Like I would appeal to those members of the polity and say, you know, if you want to work out your own salvation, if you if you want your faith manifested in in public life, this is an issue where I think it's uh, where I think the answer is pretty straightforward. So one of the things that I definitely think we need to talk about is this issue of the wall. So so there's there's economic and philosophical uh, points to be said about that. But let let's let's start with the economics. So uh, what are the fallacies? with this whole idea of a border wall? Uh, and do you think it is feasible that somehow it will actually get built, even though it is a bad idea? Can Trump actually pull it off? And if he does, what would that look like? That's a really, that's a really good question. I think the wall is, yeah, the wall's more of a totem, ultimately. It's, it's more symbolic, perhaps, than anything else, because you can tunnel under walls, you can go over walls, um, walls are very expensive. 
you know, we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to make Mexicans pay for it. Or even if we, even if we tried to, Americans would ultimately pay for it. The economic incidents of the wall would, I think, largely fall on Americans in the form of, in the form of higher prices. I'm not sure whether he'll be able to get it built or not. My, my sense is that it's largely a political gesture rather than sort of a serious, a serious issue in, uh, in immigration policy. And in order to do that, I mean, he, he'd have to rely on imminent domain, right? And so, I mean, really we're talking about something that uh, doesn't respect private property. Right. It's ex- expressly anti-capitalist because yeah. there's a lot of homes and things like that uh, along the southern border that would have to be seized by government force in order to right. build this wall. In, in addition to that, if we look at historical examples yeah. of countries building walls, and so, I mean, the, the most obvious example in recent history would have to be the Berlin Wall. What did that do to to the local economies? What did it do to the cultures in, 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 in East versus West Berlin? Uh, really, what kind of long-term societal and economic ramifications are we looking at here if there's a gigantic wall uh, cutting North America in half, basically? Well, yeah, obviously, separating people creates to a greater degree, separate peoples. There's going to be a lot less cultural integration, a lot less economic integration. Both sides of the border are going to be poorer, and both sides of the border are going to uh, are going to evolve in somewhat different ways. When we when you look at things like uh, North and South Korea, or East and West Germany, or East and West Berlin, you see uh, what are initially very similar societies culturally that split apart and diverge and diverge considerably in terms of their economic outcomes, their political outcomes, their cultural outcomes. I think that you know building a wall along the Mexican border in order to slow down immigration, in order to slow down trade, in order to choke off um, more economic integration in North America impoverishes all of us. It impoverishes us financially, it impoverishes us culturally, it impoverishes us, I believe morally as well. I think one of the reasons that Trump was well supported about the border wall, especially in running up to the election, um, you know, he carried the South pretty, pretty much by and mm-hmm. large. And I think there's this sort of anti-progressive, anti-liberalist attitude by those in the South who don't want to be controlled by Washington or don't want to be controlled by what they perceive as the liberal elitists. It is by and large more liberal people who are for more open borders. Yeah. I mean, that's right. kind of kind of the you know, the behind the word liberty, but yeah. even even just on the left and the progressives, they want that. And I think there's probably a very big push in the South to push back against that and say, no, you're not going to tell us that these Mexicans or whomever are coming across our border because we're the ones that are affected more than you in New York City or, you know, in, you know, pick any place where there's a big conglomeration of liberals who are going to, you know, affect, you know, demographically affect the outcome I think what I'm trying to get at is the attitudes of people who are more anti-immigration tend to be those who feel like they are, whether they are or not, but feel like they are going to be affected by the influx of immigrants. And again, we're back to the, well, I feel like this is going to affect me, and therefore I'm going to vote a certain way and so forth. Do you know, maybe maybe you don't have any uh, studies in mind or anything, but do you know by demographic, what the anti-immigrant bias 
is? Like, are, are white people more likely to be anti-immigrant or? Yeah, I don't actually know. Um, I am not sure what the what the breakdowns are. I just looked at the Migration Policy Institute, and it doesn't it doesn't normalize this by population, but the counties with the most immigrants are. You know, Los Angeles, California, Cook County, Illinois, where Chicago is, Miami-Dade County, Florida. These, this is in no particular order. Queens County and Kings County in New York City. So it's it's not it's not really clear that say the the South is where you know is 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 the place where the place that's being affected that much by by immigrants or by immigration. I don't actually have I, I don't actually have at my fingertips data on on immigrants per capita or immigrants as a, as a percentage of the overall population. But again, my understanding is that, is that it's actually relatively low in places like Alabama, Mississippi, et cetera. According to the Pew Research Center in 2012, the states with the largest percentage of their population that was foreign born were California, New York, New Jersey, Florida, Nevada, Hawaii, Texas, Massachusetts, Maryland, Illinois, Arizona, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Washington, Virginia. So the Deep South is not terribly well represented there. You know, you have Arizona and Texas, both of which border Mexico. Uh, Florida, obviously a big immigrant receiving state. But you know, New York, New Jersey, Nevada, Massachusetts, Maryland, Illinois, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Washington. I mean, these are, are uh, you know, this is not the heart of Dixie where the immigration population is large relative to the overall population. You know, one of the things that that often kind of comes up when people are talking about really anything in political philosophy, you, you'll often hear people say, well, if you don't like that, you can just get out, right? You can just leave right. the country. Um, and, and, and of course, I mean, there's, there's a lot of fallacies there. I mean, such as, number one, what, why should I have to leave? Um, if I own property here, I mean, what arbitrary authority is going to tell me I have to, to leave my property? But then number yeah. two, if you go to another country, you're going to run into the same thing because you have a state there, mm-hmm. which is also going to, uh, I mean, essentially enact the same sort of uh, behaviors. I mean, even if, if you find the policies a little bit more tolerable, right. uh, it, it, it's kind of the same idea that there's these uh, arbitrary abstract institutions which we which we call the state which somehow has the ability to control our access to to our private property and who we're allowed to deal with and where we're allowed to go yeah. so really when we're thinking about this i mean i'm you know i'm sympathetic to to the the, the plight uh, that a lot of people who kind of fall on the economic nationalism side of things that i mean they, they see it they 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 see real damage to their lives happening, but they don't understand that really the ultimate cause of that isn't, it's not the immigrants, it's the government right. that's doing that. Well, and okay, and let's assume, let's assume just for sake of the, the sake of the argument that it is the immigrants. It is 100% um, competition from immigrants that has reduced your standard of living. That still doesn't give you the right to prevent people who wish to hire immigrants from hiring immigrants, and it doesn't give you the right to prevent immigrants from immigrating. You know, if anything, when we think about like the long run process cost, when we think about the burden perhaps that we're creating for our children, um, what might look like a good idea right now, what might help, you know, Billy Bob at the factory right now may not necessarily help Billy Bob's kids or Billy Bob's grandkids 
or Billy Bob's great grandkids, because by changing the institutions, by making the making the world a less free place, by restricting the number of people with whom we can trade, again, we impoverish ourselves financially. I think we impoverish ourselves culturally. And <clears throat> I think I think in this case we're we're indulging something that that we all that we would almost all say like would almost all all agree is deeply deeply immoral if it were anything other than someone crossing a border absolutely agree with that and i i think that really you know that this is just a great lesson in the fact that the tentacles of the state are so uh, burdensome that it, you can't just tinker around the edges because yeah if if you change a few policies here and there it may make some things better but other things worse that's just the nature of of the state right would you so i i, I mean i i'm an anarcho-capitalist mm-hmm. our, our our listeners you know they they vary on this spectrum we have minarchists we have anarcho-capitalists but yeah i mean as i see it really the only way to fundamentally reform this is pure pure market capitalism and that means mm-hmm. the state has to be completely out of the way in every area and then you're going to really see the market do what it is meant to do by nature. Um, but, I mean, it, if for, for people who want to have their cake and eat it too, they, they, they want the state to do this but not this, mm-hmm. I mean, that, uh, that oftentimes just doesn't work. W- would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. When, when, you give the, you know, when you give the state the power to do one thing, you also give them the power to do another. And one of the big mistakes I think a lot of people make is assuming that this power that's been given to the state will only be used for good or it will only be used by people who are like me. I think it was Lyndon Johnson who said something like, and it's kind of ironic given that he was one of the architects of the welfare state, um, when you're thinking about public policy, imagine it being used by your worst enemy. And I think that's a pretty good thought experiment, a pretty good way to, uh, pretty good way to think about things. Lately, I've been essentially trying that out for progressives right now because they they don't want Trump to have any power. And they are now sort of in the other seat looking at that. So that's a really good way to right. think about these issues is what kind of power are you granting the person you don't trust with it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, uh, dissent is the highest form of patriotism again, and and uh, you know, unchecked executive authority <laughs> is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, you know that change. Yeah, that seems to change. Yeah, that seems to change pretty regularly. Yeah. The next morning after the election, recently when Trump won, I texted my very progressive and pretty mm-hmm. pretty solidly progressive friend. Are you ready for small government now? Hmm. Yeah, I would hope so. I would hope so because it again the it's. Uh, the way this is usually pitched politically, though, is you know, are you for or against helping people? Well, of course, of course I want to help people. Uh, I would hope that most people, in fact, want to help people. But just because we want to help people doesn't mean that this or that policy idea is necessarily a good idea. And when we're talking about creating authority or creating the power for some people to use guns to force other people to do, I don't know, whatever it is that they want to do, then I think we have to be extra careful. So as we begin to wrap up this conversation, I want you to imagine that you have one minute in an elevator ride. You know the person's a conservative, leaning yep. person. What is your elevator pitch as to what might change their mind? Or maybe not convince them, I would probably say, but just point them in the right direction. That's a really good question. 
the pro-immigration elevator pitch. And of course, I'm not really sure how well this is going to work because, again, there's a lot of work suggesting that you know, blitzing people with facts and figures and things like that doesn't really uh, doesn't really do a whole lot. But I would say the data suggests that immigrants, they don't take our jobs. They don't lower our wages. If anything, we have more jobs, better jobs, and higher earnings because of immigrants. The data suggests that they're not net leeches on the welfare state. The data suggests that they don't, in fact, actually commit crimes at a higher rate than you know, other than other groups in the United States. And furthermore, restricting immigration per se is a violation of individual liberty, and it's a burdensome regulation. It's a burdensome imposition on business. So pretty much, pretty much all of the values. All the things that conservatives hold dear with respect to liberty and prosperity and self-determination and, you know, don't tread on me and whatnot, like pretty much all of this is embodied in a more liberal immigration regime. That sounds good to me. I can imagine that all of that argument in one minute that Art just gave us, it probably took me a good two to five years to really be sold on it where I could actually argue in favor of it. So. You know, I don't. I'm just putting you in a, on the spot there, but I don't think any of us expect anybody to be convinced in a one-minute argument. But oh no, of course not. Those are certainly you know the direction in which to go. So for those who are listening, and you know, we could talk about this for hours, I'm sure. What resources would you recommend? What locate you know books or websites or uh, anything else of that nature? Would you recommend people to visit to do good research uh, on their own? Well, so obviously I've written a handful of articles for, for Forbes uh, or Forbes.com about this. Um, those, if I may kind of toot my own horn, are pretty good uh, – pretty, sorry, pretty good summaries of the evidence and also um, pretty good ways of finding direction to other resources. Uh, Brian Kaplan has an excellent lecture that he did for the Future of Freedom Foundation that's available – you can find that on YouTube – uh, there is a special issue of the Cato Journal that was published, I think, in 2012 that uh, that considers immigration. And then there's actually an edited volume, a volume edi- edited by Benjamin Powell, who is who knows a lot about immigration, uh, on the the economic the economic, political, social, and cultural effects of immigration. I think that was published with Oxford University Press a few years ago. But if you just look up. Google Benjamin Powell immigration or just search it on Amazon and it's pretty easy to find. Art, I know that you and Deirdre McCluskey have an, a book coming up and the title is probably my favorite title. It's probably the best title of any book. It's called Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that book's about and then share with us anything else that you're working on that our listeners can look forward to? So this is a summary and extension of Deidre McCluskey's magnum opus, which is a three-volume set on what she calls the bourgeois era. There's uh, The Bourgeois Virtues, published in 2006, Bourgeois Dignity, published in 2010, and Bourgeois Equality, which was just published in 2016. And she kind of approached me and asked if I'd be interested in writing a follow-up volume that would kind of condense her overall argument. And so that's the book that we're, uh, that's the book that we're currently working on. Uh, I hope that it's out sooner than later. That's uh, obviously a very, very big thing in my research agenda. I'm doing a lot of work on Southern economic history that is, you know, I don't know, it's, it's not moving along as well as I would like it to. 
And then, of course, always, I've been doing a lot of work on Walmart in recent years. Probably the most interesting stuff I think I have in the pipeline right now that's forthcoming is a set of papers about property. And my argument there is that Locke's ideas of original appropriation being the, uh, the thing that established property are okay because it's by the establishment of property and by the mechanism of exchange that we can actually define what it means for something to be a resource, that we can define uh, what it means for something to be a good. But lots of stuff in the pipeline, lots of stuff going on, and uh, trying, to move it, trying to move it along, uh, not always successfully. Well, Art, it has been a pleasure having you on today. And listeners, if you would like to visit artcarden.com, you'll learn more about Art, and there are links and information on Art's work online. If you would like to ask us a question here for Libertarian Christian Institute or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Institute.